Welcome to Voices of Change, a podcast inspired by Alice Dunbar Nelson and brought to you by the Rosenbach in Philadelphia as part of the digital project I Am an American, the authorship and activism of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Voices of Change discusses themes and topics covered in the I Am an American digital exhibition with key figures who were involved in shaping the exhibition's content. Each episode highlights how lessons from the life and work of Philadelphia-area author, educator, and civil rights activist Alice Dunbar-Nelson can inform American society and inspire positive change today. Find the exhibition at alicedunbarnelson.com and learn more about the Rosenbach at rosenbach.org or by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Alex Ames. I am Collections Engagement Manager at the Rosenbach and a member of the I Am an American Exhibition and Program Team. I'm your host for Voices of Change as we share in-depth conversations with some of the many people who brought the I Am an American project to fruition. Where do our society's understandings of history and culture come from? It's a question that many of us in the United States may not ask often enough. In our everyday lives, we are surrounded by inaccurate assumptions about key aspects of American history and narratives of that history that frequently exclude critical voices from past generations that hold the potential to shed more light on who we are as a nation. Today, many scholars, writers, artists, and activists are using the raw materials of history, such as rare books, historic documents, artworks, artifacts, and other collections, gathered at libraries, archives, and museums, to uncover previously hidden voices from the past and demonstrate what they have to teach us in the present. The I Am an American digital project demonstrates the power of using archival materials such as letters, diaries, and scrapbooks to illuminate important issues in Black and women's history, in this case all connected to the life and work of Alice Dunbar Nelson. But this kind of work is by no means limited to Dunbar-Nelson. Today on Voices of Change, we are joined by three researchers, writers, artists, and advocates who use research as a foundation for crafting new, more just, and inclusive narratives of American life. They will give us tips on how to uncover hidden voices in the archive. Our first panelist is Melissa Benbow, a third-year Ph.D. student in the English department at the University of Delaware, who specializes in late 19th and early 20th century African-American literature and cultural production. Melissa is also invested in public humanities and is working on a museum studies certificate at the University of Delaware. She is an African-American public humanities fellow and a graduate scholar fellowship recipient. Melissa is also a visual artist. Our second panelist today is Kelly Racine Coles, who is a doctoral candidate in the History Department at the University of Delaware. She is also an African-American Public Humanities Fellow. In her work, Coles seeks to uplift and explore the lives of Black girls and women in history by studying the textiles they created and stitched, as well as the spaces they designed. This combines her current historical research with her background in interior design and historic preservation. 
Kelly hopes to see her work improve our understanding of Black girls and women in history and the interpretation of their lives and contributions in American society, in museums, historic sites, and other public spaces. Our third panelist is Miriam I. Williams, a writer, dancer, and educator who writes to find answers, dances to find joy, and teaches to build and grow in community. In 2019, she founded the Black Womanhood Reaffirmation Project to reaffirm the resilience of Black women, other women of color, and other participants by using literature, writing, and dance that centers Black women's experiences. She's currently heading a Philadelphia Archives project called Chronicling Resistance and writing a memoir about the lessons sisterhood and church taught her about Black womanhood and sex. I want to point out that all three of our panelists today serve on the Rosenbach's Committee of Community Advisors, which was convened to offer guidance on the I Am an American digital project, so they have been integrally involved with developing the content and interpretations shared in the exhibition. Thank you all so much for participating in this interview. Those of you on the panel today have all uh, been actively involved in conducting historical research in libraries, archives, museums, and other types of institutions. Could each of you tell us a little bit about your research interests? Melissa, let's start with you. Hello, everyone. My interest is in 19th and 20th century um, Black women's production, to be particular, artistic and written production is what I'm looking at. And of course, that brings me to the archive quite a bit. Um, for the first three years of my um, doctorate program, I've been working on research around Ammonia Lewis, who is the first known African-American artist in the United States to gain international um, rapport. And even up to three, four years ago, there's been new findings that have added to her archive. So my particular, you know, experience so far with archives is finding um, missing links that exist in the archive, particularly as they pertain to African-American women. Thank you, Melissa. Kelly, could you tell us a little bit about your research interests? Thank you, Alex. So during coursework and for my dissertation prospectus, I centered Black schoolgirls and one example of their material culture, these rare needlework embroideries that they created between 1793 and 1852 while students at schools for children of color in the U.S. These needlework embroideries, many of them referred to as samplers, were examples of their learned achievements of back of biblical texts of literary texts, stitching the alphabet and numbers into linen with silk, wool, or metal threads, or stitching decorative motifs such as flowers, birds, urns, trees, and even buildings into linen. I was interested in these and in the girls' personal stories and what the samplers they created could further tell us about Black life, about Black domesticity, and about the education for black children in the north and northeastern uh, cities that they lived in, in the cities that they lived in, I would like to build on this research in my dissertation by examining additional needlework embroideries, as well as other examples of needlework and textile production, such as quilts and textiles, um, linens, 
and clothing made by Black girls and young women in the late 18th and 19th century. Through, through this research, I believe that we will have a better understanding of how girls and women express themselves and just in general navigate it through Black communities and through, through their Black communities as we were transitioning from a time of enslavement into freedom in the 18th and 19th century. Thank you so much, Kelly. Miriam, could you tell us a little bit about your research interests? Thank you, Alex, and it's it's good to be here. Um, so for the past two years, I've been the project director of Chronicling Resistance. And the goal of the project is to amplify stories of resistance in our archives and to help document and preserve current resistance movements. So resistance is a broad topic. And when I've had the chance to conduct my own research about resistance, I've focused on my surroundings. I live in West Philly. I have for five years. And the gentrification I've seen within that short time has really shocked me. Before the pandemic, I was starting to look into how West Philly residents were organizing around housing justice in the 1960s and 70s and into how the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel have displaced the surrounding communities. Before chronicling resistance and more broadly, I'm interested in the lives of African-American women and especially those whose lives bridged or intersected with Christianity and women's activism from the early 20th century to second wave feminism, sometimes the more recent past. So that's people like Anna Hedgeman, Reverend Polly Murray, Sarah Dudley Petty, someone whose name I learned last year and who I'd love to know more about one day is Althea Brown Edmiston. She was an African-American missionary on a tour for the American Presbyterian Congo Mission and also a brilliant linguist. And she really made it her business while in the Congo to document the Kuba people's intellect, the complexities of their language and their matrilineal governing system. And I think what those women really have in common is how they were Black women who were in situations where their identities intersected and sometimes really crashed in many of the same ways Black women today still deal with. And yet they found ways to remain outspoken and to be advocates for Black women in the places that they were in. Thank you so much, Miriam. Melissa, some of our listeners may be interested in lifting up voices that are traditionally underrepresented in historical narratives, but they might not know where to start in terms of conducting their own research. Could you tell us a bit about how you first started doing research with collections in libraries and archives and what the experience was like? Sure. So I had a brief experience with research in archives, I would say, during my undergraduate experience. And that kind of gave me a sense of where I'd like to go um, in terms of really doing more archival research. And it was because of the unique nature of African-American archives that I was drawn more to the process, particularly because enslavement and the afterlives of slavery, of course, obscure a lot of what is available. And not only, only does it obscure, but it also calls for more creative research styles and a more expansive definition of what an archival material might be considered. And I did most of that deep learning about 
what an archive is, particularly in regards to um, African-American history in graduate school, I came across Edmonia Lewis actually at the suggestion of one of my professors. But I would say to those that um, are looking to do more research that, of course, your professors and those around you will be able to provide you with ideas and point you into the direction of different people that you might be able to research or not only people, but literatures, et cetera. But I would say just going into the archive with an open mind is kind of where it all begins. So for example, while doing research on Monia Lewis, I came across a speech delivered by the National Association of Colored Women that mentioned Lewis. And so that speech changed the direction of my research a little bit because I didn't realize that there was a connection between the commissions that Edmonia Lewis was doing as an artist and other women's movements during her time period, which was the late 1800s. And so I would say if you just sit and start reading things, you'll come across some really cool stuff. And that will that will either change the direction or help you evolve or help you come across figures that you didn't even know that you would be writing about. Kelly? So one of my first encounters with the archives was actually during my historic preservation master's program at the University of Pennsylvania. It was in Roger Moss's documentation course that each where each student had to conduct deed research on a particular address in Philadelphia to create a chain of title or a record of ownership of that property. In creating this chain of title, the goal was to trace the building and the lot that it sat on as far back as we possibly could in history, preferably to when the lot was first granted to the person by William Penn. This research entailed visiting the city department of records to find the most recent deed information on that property and then to city archives for documents such as fire insurance records and probate records like wills, uh, building surveys and inventories after the person would pass away. They would go through each room in the house and note down what was left um, and that would become the the person's inventory of possessions. Um, we, you would also find historic images of the building or the lot and possibly the block that it's set on. And then we would go to the free library and to the Athenaeum to locate the, the historic maps that included the building and or lot that we were researching. And then finally, we would go to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and to the National Archives Office to learn about the various records available to us to conduct genealogical research for the people or the person who lived in that building or owned the lot. And we often went to each institution as a class just so that we would be introduced to the persons who we could come back and speak to and we could be introduced to the collections. And then after that, throughout the rest of the semester, we could return on our own to do further research to conduct the project. And just going through that process and being introduced to all these various various collections in Philadelphia, I realized how much I loved historical research. I love being that investigator that gets to learn about the people as well as the homes and the types of buildings here in Philadelphia. I loved it. 
Miriam, how would you answer that same question? My work with archival collections began in 2014 at the University of Louisville in a graduate course called History of U.S. Feminisms with an S. The class emphasized primary source documents, and the final exam was a documentary project. We had to address a significant issue in the history or contemporary practice of feminism by interpreting primary source documents about that issue. As you said in the intro, I'm a writer, a dancer. For a time, I was a painter, and I wanted to write something about Black women and Black arts activism or cultural organizing in Louisville, where I was born and raised and where most of my family still lives. And that interest eventually led me to the personal archive of Mary E. Jefferson, who founded the African-American Women's Literary Series and ran it throughout the 90s, and to the Women's Center archives held at the University of Louisville. And I mostly found the process fun. I have a natural interest in old stuff and in history, and I have an innate curiosity, so my impulse to ask questions about the old stuff never really stops. But there were also many times I felt dwarfed by the enormity of material out there. I forget now what led to the more archaeological project of delving into someone's personal files at their home, but I remember putting boxes and bags of her papers into my car and filling my trunk and then later having my living room floor covered in copies of documents. And I I also ran into an immediate problem at the UofL archives because some of the Women's Center archives were closed or sealed because this was a few years before certain files were to be unsealed. And I just hadn't expected that to come up. But once I got into the archive, into opening the boxes, getting into the folders, I was just giddy. Like I, I would find a document, I'd read it, and sometimes just laugh out loud. And it was like the process became addictive. The more I did it, the more I wanted to do it. Thank you, Miriam. Melissa, do you have a favorite artifact or document or book that you've discovered in your archival research process? And how do you make use of it in the work that you're doing as a, as a doctoral student? There's a lot of books that I've come across that have aided me in the archival process but particularly archival material that itself that's been helpful to me are, have actually been letters and has actually been periodicals. I find that the periodical culture or the print culture, I should say, that African-Americans created in the 19th century is very rich and abundant. From the cover articles to the smaller advertisements, there's so much there that you can um, learn about um, what was going on at the time. It was a space to share not only literary and other cultural developments, but also political perspectives, commerce, trade, things like that. And interestingly enough, a practice at that time was publishing letters. And so um, there is a letter that was published in a Black newspaper that Admonia Lewis wrote to a women's organization in Pennsylvania, in which she is um, expressing gratitude for a commission that they gave her to sculpt a bust of Phyllis Wheatley. 
And the reason why this particular artifact stands out to me is because it points me in, it pointed me into the direction of another really interesting link between Edmonia Lewis, who was living in Italy at the time, and things going on in the United States. Um, and so in general, I would say that's just one example of the many interesting things that you can find in Black publications, particularly Black periodicals and newspapers at that time. So I would say if if you don't know where to start, then newspapers and periodicals are a great place to start because they're kind of the hub that will point you in the direction of everything else. Kelly, how would you answer that question? Yes, I would say that the book that is aiding me and inspiring me as I go about my archival research is one I was actually introduced to this summer as I was making my way through texts by Black feminists and womenist writers, I had the opportunity to read Alice Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Womanist Prose, published in 1983. I was first told to I, I needed to read this book over a year ago when I did a presentation at the Childhoods of Color conference in um, Madison, Wisconsin at the university. And I was just getting around to reading it this summer. This book spoke to me and reaffirmed for me why I'm doing this work of centering Black girls and women and their many expressions of creativity exemplified through these rare examples of material culture that we are blessed to still have with us today. As Miss Walker stated, their means of self-expression, despite society's oppressions, their creativity, their spirituality was kept alive year after year, century after century through the work of their hands by making clothes and towels and linens and cooking and canning veggies and fruits, making quilts and so forth. In their gardens, these places where Walker says they were able to order the universe in their own personal conceptions of beauty. This creativity is still with us, I feel, as Black girls and women today, and it and it's because it has been passed down to us by our ancestors. And today we have the ability, I have the ability, thankfully, to continue to do this work, to uplift and to share these beautiful examples of creativity and spirituality, these works of beauty that have been largely forgotten or hidden or dismissed and ignored in American society. So yes, it's it's this book that that continues that I've had the opportunity to read and read and continues to inspire me and just let me know that I'm on the right path. Miriam? I have and my fave is from that history of US feminism's document project that uh that kind of introduced me to, to the archives. And it's a set of women-centered newsletters from 1993 that contains some irate letters to the editor from white women who are angry that the Women's Center sponsored African-American and other multicultural programming. One letter said the Women's Center should focus on feminism and leave race to the cultural center. And it's my favorite because I found the letters so ridiculous and because they so thoroughly shocked me and my classmates. 
And I, I don't think it had fully registered to any of us before seeing that document that there had ever been, much less still were, feminists who could make racism and sexism mutually exclusive issues or who could look at Black women or Chicanas or Latinas or South Asian women or East Asian women and say, whatever else you all have going on belongs over there. It is not a women's issue. And I also love the response from the director of the Women's Center, who was white, and from the director of the Cultural Center, a Black woman. And the Cultural Center director just bust out Sojourner Truth speech, Ain't I a Woman? And the Women's Center director but bluntly says that, quote, racism in all forms constitutes the gravest threat to social justice because it pervades our daily lives. And that set of documents continues to influence my work because it shows me, again, the obstacles that, the same obstacles that we have today, you know, they're not new. And they show pathways to how Black women, and in this case, also allies, have fought to overcome them. Thank you so much for sharing those stories of books, documents, and other artifacts that you've encountered in the process of your archival research. You all have been doing such interesting and really deep research in collecting institutions. I'd love to get some uh, practical tips uh, from you for people to bear in mind if they would like to start doing research at a library, museum, or an archive. Melissa, what would you say to someone who's just thinking about undertaking this process? What guidance would you give them? So to anyone who is starting um, research in an archive, I would suggest um, to have a list of guiding questions that are, of course, open-ended and will kind of point you in the direction of what you think you're looking for. And then once you go into the archive, to be adventurous. The answers to the questions that you formulate may not be as straightforward as you might think they would be, especially when looking into um, Black archives. I would also say that, particularly given in um, our quickly changing times that online archives are your friend. There's a lot that has been uploaded to internet archives and more is being added each day. And I would say to look around within the questions that you have. And so what I would add is maybe questions and a list of themes that you would like to um, use, themes and search terms, because there's going to be so much digging that you'll have to do that you'll want to have an open kind of a, a balance between open searching and some sort of organization. And so what I found in my research so far is that being both organized and open-minded is very helpful when going into an archive. Kelly, how would you answer that same question? Yes, I would say to go in with an idea and or questions of what it is that you are looking for within the collections or the archives and introduce yourself to the professionals working in the space spaces, whether that be the librarian, archivist, 
or museum curator. Now in this age of COVID, this would entail emailing the professional to introduce yourself and tell them a little bit about the research that you are conducting online through their digital collections. You do not have to be specific about what you're looking for if you aren't at that point in your research, but reaching but reaching out to the professionals could lead them to directing you to resources you had not considered or knew the institution held before arriving on site or using their online databases. And otherwise, I would say just to be open and be adventurous to what the archives have to offer and just enjoy the discoveries, enjoy yourself. Miriam, how would you answer that question? I'll answer this as if I'm speaking directly to Black people and other people of color doing research on Black people and other people of color. My tips are to prepare yourself to be offended by language, even in the finding aid. Accept that you may not be able to find an abundance of information authored by Black people, Indigenous people, and other people of color, but learn to read between the lines of what's been written by others. For chronicling resistance, I've asked local archivists to think about when they're writing a finding aid or a research guide to think about movie credits. The main characters and supporting characters are named, but then you may have the doorman, the waitress, girl number three, boy kicking a ball, things like that. So when you're researching, look out for the unnamed characters. Also with chronicling resistance, I work alongside researchers who are non-traditional. They're not working on a scholarly publication or writing a book or preparing their family history for a, a reunion. And their approach to research is sometimes metaphysical, like letting an ancestor guide you, calling on an ancestor when you run into difficult material. So my tip is to, yes, come in with some guiding questions, but also know that metaphysical approaches are valid approaches to research too. So use them. And also a more quote-unquote practical things they've learned, like take breaks, bring a snack, stretch, schedule more time than you think you will need. And I think most importantly, know that these spaces are for you. No matter what or who is pictured on the walls, no matter what language you might encounter in the finding aid, no matter who might wonder what you're doing there, these spaces are yours. These spaces are ours. And so much of our history remains undiscovered. Thank you, Melissa, Kelly, and Miriam, for helping us understand how primary source historical research can create a more accurate and inclusive narrative of American history. To learn more about the topics covered in this episode of Voices of Change, please visit the I Am an American digital exhibition. You'll find it at alicedunbarnelson.com. Learn more about the Rosenbach at rosenbach.org or by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Support for I Am an American is provided by the Pennsylvania Abolition Society Endowment Fund of the Philadelphia Foundation. 
Thank you for listening, and please listen to other episodes of Voices of Change. La, 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 la